Are you ready? Okay. Here we go. And now, coming to you live from the 72nd World Science Fiction Convention, London, England, it's Gary K. Wolfe and Jonathan Strand with esteemed guests Robert Silverberg, Kim Stanley Robinson and Joe Walton on on the 200th episode of Hugo Award-nominated Coot Street Podcast! And they're off. Um, we have, we've got a really impressive, intimidating group of people, so Jonathan and I have decided not to speak at all during this. <laughs> Which would be an uh, absolute uh, gift to everybody. Well, yeah, we, 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 we've been told many times that would be an improvement. Um, I think what we want to talk about, since we have people here who have, um, who represent, I don't know, a thousand years of science fiction uh, tradition. <laughs> Some more than others. Some uh, more than others, yeah. The, um, well, you were, okay. I think what we want to talk about is uh, starting with Robert, since you, since we always start with Robert. Uh, we science do? Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Is science fiction good for anything anymore? Is science fiction... Good for anything good anymore? Good for anything. It's been very good for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, it... Uh, Brightens the universe. It, it uh, decorates the sky. It, it uh, improves the Milky Way. Uh, <laughs> it's fun. It's stimulating. It's profitable for some people. It's not profitable for others, though. Well, that's the central concept of some people. It excludes others. <laughs> <laughs> Robinson is looking gloomier and gloomier as I go on with this. Say something socialistic, Stan. <laughs> yes, uh, science fiction is a great way to imagine the uh, new world being built in the shell of the old. Oh. That's it? <laughs> this this uh, will be a short like podcast. Famous today. quote, IWW, the Wobblies. <laughs> uh -huh. Never mind. How about you, Joe? What do you think science fiction is for today? Is it for something? Well, yeah, why does it have to be for something? Is it just is? Well, when I first encountered <laughs> science fiction, I always felt that it was, yes, it was entertaining, and it was always entertaining if it was worth reading, but it was also engaging, and it was about something more. And when I look back at what I heard about the early days of science fiction, it seemed to be to have a okay. mission about what it was doing more than just filling up endless pages of yeah. pulps. Okay, okay, if science fiction is for something, what it's for is expanding, expanding your answer space. So when, when you have a story, you're asking a question, the story has questions, it's got characters, it's there, there are questions, and then the story will answer those questions. And within science fiction, you've got the widest possible answer space the widest possible range of answers that you can give to the questions that the story asks. And so if, if science fiction is for something as, as opposed to other kinds of entertainment, other kinds of stories, that's what science fiction is for. We, we've drifted immediately into the utilitarian fallacy. Right. It's your fault, too. It's my fault. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who was it who asked, what, what use is a poem? What use is a baby? Mm. What use is science fiction? These are not relevant questions. A, a science fiction story is a self-contained verbal object that tells a story. 
What is the use of story? I wasn't asking what the use of it was. What is it for? What is it for is... And, uh, what is it in favor well, okay. of? Is that what you're asking? No, no, not, 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 not <laughs> ideologically. Uh, how, how do we use it these days? And do we, you, you've had the longest career of anyone, in this room at least. I think by now with Fred Polgon, it's probably the longest career. Probably but, uh, is the longest career period. And there was a sense of tightness and community and um, I hesitate to use the word boyhood. Uh, when you began writing science fiction. Yeah. That community is broadened enormously. The space that Joe talks about is broadened enormously from, from what it was when you began. Uh, does that feel liberating to you? No, it doesn't feel liberating to me. It feels terrifying. Uh, but you, you, you said, what do we use it for? And I, I still don't make any sense of that question. The science fiction world that I grew up in, which is the world of the 40s and 50s, mm -hmm. uh, because I'm now practically 80, is, was a village. Mm -hmm. It's now a megalopolis. And uh, those of us with pastoral fantasies prefer to live in villages. I knew everybody who wrote science fiction. I read all the science fiction that was being published, and it didn't, wasn't a full-time job. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, I wrote within certain accepted conventions that we all understood. And as things expanded, why well, last night I went to a reception uh, held by the Science Fiction Writers of America, which I was a founding member back mm -hmm. in 1965. And it was a crowded room in which I could recognize about four people. Uh, there are more than four people at this convention whom I know, mm. but they weren't at the party, and a lot of people were at the party who I had no idea who they were, and I'm sure they're all famous science fiction writers. Well, that destroys the sense of community that I had, uh, and I'm uncomfortable with it, but there's a lot I'm uncomfortable mm. with that I can't change. Well, Stan, you came in a little bit later when the community was maybe not the megalopolis it is now, but a sizable city? I think of it as a small town, and even now a small town, because there's a, a group of people that is sort of small town size that keeps showing up at uh, different mm -hmm. spots around the globe year after year. So it's a kind of a brigadoon community. <laughs> you know, for hmm. a long time it's dispersed, and then a convention weekend will come up, and lo and behold, there's Agberg again. You know, it's amazing. And, and so this is, uh, to me, a small-town sensation, even though there is, um, you know, like London, you could think, especially if you were local, that there was a, a small-town part of the city that you knew that had been overrun by Greater London. And so maybe science fiction has been overrun by uh, what Klute calls Fantastica and by the larger world uh, uh, in general, because uh, now that the world is a, is a science fiction story, we're looking pretty good. But it's still the small town at the heart of it that keeps coming back to these meetings and is a, uh, a, a social community that is, um, um, I think, important to all of the people who do show up or else they wouldn't show up. So that's another kind of small town feeling. And it's a, it's a conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and the science fiction that is being written now is in dialogue with the science fiction that has been written in the past and reaching forward to the science fiction that will be written in the future. 
Well, so that, that, so was, it that is was true, Joe, but there's so much dialogue going on that it's, it's a roaring sound. It's, it's, it's not possible to hold a conversation with 10,000 people simultaneously. No, no, it's not. But I think, I think that the genre is still small enough that it is, it is a conversation, even if you're not listening to every corner of the cocktail party. The conversations that are going on and being repeated and, and connecting still, still are connecting up so that it's possible to see it as, as still being one conversation, even if it is in more, more strands. Yeah, there's there's many um. definitions of success as a writer, and so one of them would just be pure number of sales, a, a very important measure, I might mm -hmm. add. But another one is that somehow you've managed to make uh, everybody else in your small town uh, want to read you in order to know what's going on. So that's a kind of a success in the in the small town terms, and that does indeed still happen. If you want to keep up with the current moment, then, well, say recently, you you would have to have read uh, Bocce Galupi, What's This Wind-Up Girl? Or now maybe you have to read Ancillary Justice. What's going on with this, Anne Lucky? Uh, do you see what I mean? There's a, there's a way in which, no matter how, I don't know how many books those books sold in the wider world, but in the small town, they got a buzz that meant that you needed to read them in order to find out what the current moment in SF was like. It was much easier back in the Mesozoic when I was starting out because everybody read everything. And so if Galaxy were to serialize The Demolished Man, you didn't need buzz. Right. You, you knew immediately, oh, yeah. The Demolished Man, and then we all talked about The Demolished Man. Now we have to seek it out. I remember when you came mm. around about 1978 or thereabouts, and Yes, Terry Carr says, there's a guy named Robinson, I've got a story of his, you ought to read it. And I, I read it and I said, yeah, I ought to get to know this guy, Robinson, and I did. Right. But and when Joe's book uh, won all the awards a few years ago, uh, I already knew you, but I thought, well, what has she written that is causing all this stir? So I went out and found it, but now you have to make an effort. In the small town that is gone, and uh, I don't want to sound like uh, the, the praiser of past times, as we would say in Latin, if anybody spoke Latin anymore, uh, that, that world is gone and can never come back. But in that time, it was automatic that you knew what you needed yeah. to know. Mm -hmm. And the dialogue, yes, a dialogue of stories, not just uh, what's going on now, dialogue between modern stories and the early ones, we would have conversations going on between what was in last month's Astounding and what we were writing next month. Uh, it's very difficult now. The signal-to-noise ratio has gotten very bad for us. It's hard to find out what's going on. In fact, uh, I don't know what's going on. I think, I think in many ways, it's, 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 I mean, I'm younger than you are. Uh, um, I'll, be, I'll be 50 this year. But I think in many ways it's easier to find out what's going on now because of the internet, because people are, are talking about it. And it was only the magazines, and the magazines were every month. And yes, you could read everything that was in all of the magazines, but some of it was crap. Well, finding, finding the good stuff uh, was, was easy, but so was finding the bad stuff because it was Whereas all together. Whereas what's on the internet is not crap at all. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Loads of it is crap. Lo loads of it is crap. I would say precisely the same proportions. Uh, but finding the good stuff is easier because people are talking about it, which is not to say you don't still miss things. But uh, there, are, there are people out there talking about it and the conversations are there and, and people are, are directing you, you to it when there is excitement about it. And so 
Recently, there was a story on Tor.com called Litany of Earth by Ruth Anna Emerys, and people were talking about it, and it was there was buzz around that story in a way that, say, my story that's on Tor.com this week, there isn't any buzz about it. It's a perfectly fine story. It's there, but nobody's really excited about it. But people were excited about that. It was an, an, a newish author, an exciting story. People were talking about it. I saw people talking about it in, in that kind of way. And then you go look at the story, and there it is, and, and you, everybody reads it. The same way everybody read everything that was in Galaxy or Astounding. Well, that's, that's where I think the community and the, the field or the genre... I mean, we're talking about two different things, but at one point, what you're talking about, uh, Bob, in the 40s and 50s, they were the same. The people you saw at the convention were the same people that you read day in and day out. Absolutely. That's no longer true. Uh, the, the, the convention is a community that includes a lot of things now that have little to do with fiction at all, you have a lot of writers that are very active in the field that are never going to show up at conventions. So the community is no longer the same thing uh, as the genre. And I think you're right. That's almost, um, I don't want to say ancient history because you're not that old. But <laughs> well, the Martian I, Chronicles... I went to my first convention before 97% of you were born. That's ancient history. Hmm. Okay, uh, then you're agreeing with what I was about to say, which, which is always nice. The, um, the Martian Chronicles appeared... 74, four, 64, no, 74 years ago. 1950. 1950. 1950. Mm -hmm. the, okay, that's a lot. 64. 64, 64, years, 64 yeah. years ago. Do the math. Do the math. Yeah, that's why we have and people are still reading calculators. It. Yeah. Um, well, we used to know how to do arithmetic. Okay, that's 64 years ago. 1950 was 52 years after the War of the Worlds. In terms of the history of science fiction, the Martian Chronicles is now part of the early history of the yep. early half of science fiction. It's no longer part of the contemporary experience that we all uh, enjoy. You know, I would make another uh, dualism that is, was taught to me by one of my teachers, the poet Gary Snyder, that you have, everybody has your community and your network. And the community are the people that are your neighbors that you live around and see on a daily basis. And they might not do the same thing you do. So that's mm -hmm. your community. And then your network are the people that maybe anywhere in the world that you have a professional association with. So um, science fiction, uh, it might be that there was a time where the two were almost the same. Now um, uh, there are still people in science fiction who try to make the network their community, but that gets into a kind of mm. worms-in-the-bottle situation. You really need a real community of people that you hang with all the time and not just be going to a convention every weekend. But it's a wonderful thing to have a network. It's crucial. It's an intellectual community. And when you go and connect with your network at a convention, you're meeting some of your best friends because they do the same thing you do. You can talk about the shared interests of your shared trade, crafts, uh, art form, skill, and uh, business. Whereas in your community, you're definitely going to be a freak. There's not going to be another science fiction writer in your community, by and large, unless you happen to live next to Vance and you know mm -hmm. uh, deliberately do something. So I think it makes a, a difference uh, to, to think of your network as being a crucial part of your life, but you don't see them all the time. You mm -hmm. might email them. And that science fiction has a particularly great network because the people that you get to talk to are so wonderful and they are uh, so smart so that if you say you came out of a university context, which I did, and most universities are, are nests of vipers, you know, each department, <laughs> especially English departments, are at war with each other. The knives in their back practically bow them over, you know. But here, uh, although there are knives in our backs too, but um, they're a little bit more invisible, and also there's a little more collegiality because we're not stuck together. And so we have a very beautiful network, and that's why I think it keeps on meeting. 
I think, I think this is actually a very exciting time. And there's a lot of exciting work being done and a lot of, a lot of cool stuff being written and, and in dialogue with older stuff, as, as I said. And I think that it is a time when the community and the field are a lot more welcoming to a lot more kinds of voices. So in the time when, when you're talking about that almost everybody who was writing science fiction was male, they were almost all American, they were almost all white. And now that's just not the case. There, there are people from all over the world, there are lots of women, uh, there are people from other countries, there are people from minorities within, within the US and within, within Britain. And, and the field is, is being more welcome to diverse voices who, who have interesting things to say. It's not just limited to the same kinds of people uh, where science fiction was being read mostly by men, mostly by Americans, and written mostly by those people. And I, th I think that is exciting and, and that is fun. And yet, I see this total continuity with people reading it in exactly the same way that I came to reading it when I was a teenager and who were who reading it in that exact same way where they're, where they're just gulping it down and, and living it and, and mm -hmm. breathing it in, in that way. And I, I, I think this is excellent. Several years ago, we spoke to uh, Barry Molesberg on this podcast. And he said that he thought the greatest period for quality of writing in the history of the science fiction field was the 1950s. And we could go around about whether there's merit to that or not. But the point that I'm curious about is, and I'd start with Bob if, if you would, I know you don't read as much currently in the field as you used to these days, but do you feel there's something that's been lost in the way that we go about writing science fiction and publishing it now? Since, you know, from back in the day. Well, I'd hesitate to say anything's been lost because in a field that is now as big as this, everything is possible. Uh, if if, if uh, Ted Sturgeon were to appear today, he wouldn't be turned away at the door, even though he's a white male, in oh. fact, an old dead white male. Uh, <laughs> they'd let him write. Uh, I think Barry is right that science fiction reached a dazzling level in the early years of the 1950s when you could expect from one publisher alone in the same year books like uh, Childhood's End, Fahrenheit 451, More Than Human, Bring the Jubilee, uh, and I'm naming consecutive monthly publications from this one uh, house, which was Ballantine Books. Uh, Today, there's, there's too, much, too much noise. You can't notice a thing like that happening. The magazines today are insignificant survivors uh, staggering around, but they're not important. The magazines then were giving us The Demolished Man and <clears throat> the other stories of Alfred Bester and Sturgeon and Kornbluth and Blish and Vance uh, and uh, an occasional female writer, uh, but they were rarities. Uh, Judy Merrill, uh, C.L. Moore was still writing for a while there. Uh, Lee Brackett. <laughs> Those were our three, you know. Uh, there was stories that stood out brilliantly above what had gone before. There was an alleged golden age in uh, 1939 to 42, 
the, the John Campbell Golden Age when uh, Heinlein, De Camp, Hubbard, Sturgeon, Asimov, Van Vogt all made their debuts in one year in the same magazine. But if you go back and read those stories now, they don't stand up as much writing. Uh, they're, they're, they're certainly far beyond the Gernsback era of the 20s, but they look like pretty rough stuff. I've, I've gone back and read some of them. I edited a book called The Science Fiction Hall of Fame, which is largely made up of the Golden Age book, that, uh, Golden mm -hmm. Age stories. That book itself, 1967, it's, it's getting quite elderly, but the stories are from the 30s and 40s, and when I looked at it recently, I thought, oh dear, you know, this is... But the stories of uh, the early 1950s, I, I think, still, still measure. Mm -hmm. Nobody's doing The Demolished Man and The Stars My Destination right now. Uh, however, I'm sure that in the vast welter of current science fiction publishing, I don't even attempt to penetrate that, that hive now because there are too many bees in it. There's something great going on but out there. Just oh. to yeah. follow up on that, Joe, yeah. Joe, you've done a lot of rereading in the last few years, and your book, What Makes This Book So Great, is evidence of that. Do you agree with Bob? Okay. I, I, I think that I, I agree that the early 50s were a, a glowing period and that the, or I think all of the things that Bob just referenced are things that hold up. And you know what? They're nearly all in print. The Demolished Man uh, uh, and the, the Stars of My Destination are, are in print as, as e-books and, and as, as physical books right now. Whereas when I was starting to, to want things, you know, in the 70s and 80s, boy, if I wanted the stars my destination, it was library or nothing because mm -hmm. there wasn't an edition. And, and now so many things are coming back into print and you can get them again. And... Uh, I, I think this is this is so great. This is this is just the best thing ever that, that mm. we can we can have all these things. And so I recently reread *The Stars My Destination*, which is such a great book. I mm. mean, whoa, what a great book! But it also it really reminded me of a, of an unpublished book that I had just read as well, which is by my friend Ada Palmer, which is it's called *The Dogs of Peace*. And Patrick Nelson Hayden has recently bought this first of a mm. four-book philosophical SF series for, for tour. It'll be coming out next year. And, and she's clearly been influenced by Besta in that book in some ways, but she's also been influenced by, by Jean Wolfe and, mm -hmm. and all kinds of other things. And she's written this absolutely corking book that I can't wait for it to be out there so that I can talk to people about it because I'm so excited about it in exactly the same way that when I was 14, ah. I, was, I was having my head blown off by, by reading Dying Inside and, and Besta and, and all of these deeply exciting things that were exciting to me in that way. And what, what, what happens when you, when you grow up, you're like, you read a book and you think, well, there's a really nice example of that. Hasn't that been prettily put together? And you don't anymore go, oh, sense of wonder, sense of wonder. Mm -hmm. And it's great to read something that, that gives you that. If and you, every it, so often I do. And, and the Do Dogs of Peace would be an example of something that really gave me that. And, and, and I can't wait till it's out and you read it. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were 14 when you read Dying Inside? Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Warped forever. Which, well, <laughs> when, when I was, uh, of course, the, the book that gives you that, that jolt that you had originally, that has to be an extraordinary book. Right. When I was editing uh, New Dimensions, the original story anthology, the questions 
I would ask of a story uh, when, uh, when I read it, I mean, other than uh, assessing the story for what it was, could I have written it mm -hmm. Mm. if I thought it was at least as good as what I was writing myself, I should buy it. When I came along with one that made me say, I wish I could have written it, huh. I knew I'd buy it. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was easy. And so uh, Tiptree, I looked at that and said, oh, I wish I could have written that. Yeah. So uh, I sent him an immediate letter. <laughs> of course you did. Of acceptance. <laughs> uh, as for this, um, this subjective aspect of evaluating story, if it does what it did for me when I was first starting out, and it's very rare that's going to happen. Right. And when you buy my age, it's really rare. When I talk about the greatness of the 1950s, uh, this has to be put in the context of me as reader and as uh, aspiring writer in the 1950s, reading those magazines of 1953, which still stand out as, as classic, and thinking, if I'm going to have a career, I have to write as well as these guys. Very intimidating, and it has stayed with me all these years. Uh, I think I got to be pretty good. But every now and then, I take down some magazine from... Uh, <coughs> 1953, just to reassure myself that I probably could have sold, the me of now, could probably have sold something to those magazines because they hold such a powerful, huge place in my adolescent, my memories of my adolescent life. And that has to be discounted somewhat by people who are coming to them as not adolescent beginning writers. What a great question. Yeah. Stan, what about you? What, what really sort of... Well, I think it's just exactly the same as what Bob just said, because I came into science fiction and, and discovered it in, uh, around uh, 1970. And for me, the period of uh, writing from about 1965 to 1975 is a, a real peak in science fiction history. It included uh, Bob's uh, most famous books, but also um, Le Guin, Wolfe, Selazny, Delaney, Stanislaw Lamb, the Strugatsky brothers, Russ, uh, Russ yeah. for sure, and uh, Kate Wilhelm, and um, there was a period there where it seemed like any book I opened was going to be fantastically good, and then I would occasionally go back and say, well, okay, but this is a, a, a golden age master, because they usually were men, I, I better try them too, and they really uh, looked thin compared to the stuff that was exploding into um, newness in the, that decade, 65 to 75. And, you know, without having gone back and reread very extensively, I occasionally will go back and reread. And I know Bob and I both admire this book, a second novel by Joanna Russ, And Chaos Died. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. introduction to it by Bob in the, um, uh, the Greg, Press. Greg Press edition, the green one. And well, there's there's no book better about telepathy since then. It's just incandescent. It, that many of these books, the, I think it was the historical period. The 60s were exploding. Nobody knew what was going to happen, and these writers were importing uh, methods of high modernism into the science fiction material. So that with Wolf, you get the Proust of the pulps. You know, um, Aldous and Aldous, I should have mentioned, he was great. Ballard too. They were in this period. These Brits, M. John Harrison, the very young. 
well, Aldous was doing uh, Robe Grier's uh, Nouveau Roman, and it went, and, and, and a little bit of Joyce and the wordplay. So modernism was suddenly shoved into science fiction materials, and, the, and that and history itself made for a really explosive and exciting uh, period of time. And, and I'm, I have to say that it banked down after that, and it's partly maybe like you say. I've, I had grown up, I had become a young professional writer, I was looking at craft, I wasn't being blown away as often, and also after the great feminist classics were done at the end of the 70s, you get into the 80s and you get into uh, me and my contemporaries and a kind of a, and a, kind of a grubby little um, um, disaster, which was the 1980s. And it was a disaster in world history as well as in literary history. What a coincidence. You know, the Reagan-Thatcher counter-revolution, and suddenly you get these, these, um, de these depressed, uh, <laughs> well, we're not going to win anything, and let's find our way in the mean streets of the world, blah, blah. Um, you, you know, uh, I, I can't get excited about that, and I don't but think then, many of those books will hold. But, you know, it's been a while since then, and then it all, it all got revitalized in the 90s with new space opera. Yes, so, oh, definitely you know. true. <laughs> oh, I'm actually yeah. anyway. I, don't, I don't agree with you. I mean, because, because the ages are our ages are. I mean, our ages are quite similar. Right. But so you're you, younger. You, the, well, well, the part, the period that you're saying when it all got grubby, was the most exciting time I can imagine reading. <laughs> I, I mean, so I was just absolutely captivated. I think there's, isn't there's this a lot the of golden truth. age of science fiction? Is twelve? Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah that's, man, that's just man what named, I was going to say. There's a lot of truth yeah. in that. Yeah. Yeah. Man named Peter Graham said that the golden age of science fiction is twelve. Yeah. Uh, but you're right, not 65, you're putting it a little too early, but about 67 to 74 or 5, it was a golden age also. Mm. Uh, yeah, Delaney, the, the stuff that Delaney was doing. I then. didn't mm -hmm. bring it up uh, when I was talking about the 1950s, because f for one thing, the 1950s uh, have an aura for me as a, a mm. teenager that can't be replaced, and for another, for the, the next golden age, uh, I was in the middle of it, and right. uh, one, one of the, right. the key players. But what happened after that, it's not Margaret Thatcher's fault, it's the fault of the people out there. None of, none of, none of the books of that golden age lasted in print beyond about 1978 or so. The entire glorious movement that produced Lafferty, Russ, uh, Spinrad, uh, 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 you know who they are, Zelazny, uh, yeah. me, all of those books were swept away when the publishers counted the sales. And a new kind of science fiction dominated by the, the Star Wars school of thinking came in and held the fort. That's when right. I walked away, yeah, yeah, said yeah, I'm yeah. not going to write this stuff anymore. It's impossible because when you do the very best you can, they kick you in the teeth. Well, you're talking, you're, you're talking to some extent about what happened to publishing in general and not just to science fiction. The Alfred A. Knopf's of the world uh, gave way to the Brittlesman's of the world. Uh, yeah. The idea of personally editing a, a line and publishing books that you believed in uh, became more and more difficult and more and more the, uh, the, the, the um, territory of small presses, which actually have done a very good job including with your collected stories so that there are very important books that are available. My sense is that 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 moment of discovery, that sense of wonder that, that we all had at some point as teenagers, is still available, but it's not available necessarily from the same set of books. You can discover, you have this vast storehouse of science fiction now, and different readers are going to discover different uh, exciting things in them. I was talking just before, um, a couple of hours before this, uh, whatever it is we're doing, the... <laughs> 
I was talking to Hanu Rayanimi. He's a very hot, very young writer, uh, very good writer, and um, cutting edge, not trained in literature at all. But it turns out he was blown away by Olaf Stapledon. Uh, right on. That's kind of cool. And, um, and th that's, that's some, Olaf Stapledon, for those, how many, how many people have tried to read Olaf Stapledon? How many people have finished both books? There's See? more than two. Okay, there. <laughs> <laughs> Star Maker actually just. Guys, finish him. Well, yeah, what, what, what is so challenging so, yeah. about getting all the way to the end of short, brilliant books like Last and First Men and Star Maker? Uh, well, it's because they're entirely in summarization rather than dramatization. They're chronicles. And because there's a current fashion that says that when you start to summarize, you've fallen off the beam into incompetence and horribleness. Yes, because <laughs> everything has to be dramatized. Dramatized, he, he, dramatized, scene, 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 scene. He does nothing scene. But, but tell rather <laughs> But I'll stop that rant right now because I've already gone <laughs> way <laughs> too far with that <laughs> yesterday. And to those of you who saw me yesterday, my apologies. Stapleton tells rather than shows. Yeah. Therefore, he shows things that nobody has ever seen before. It's fantastic. He's mm -hmm. a prose poet, and the real rule in writing is tell, don't show. The, 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 the instruction show, don't tell is actually um, right. a zombie idea. It, it died in 1970 when Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude was published in English, and which is entirely a told novel and one of the greatest of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. But MFA programs, various university departments, various science fiction conventions and writing workshops with which I'm too much identified, um, we keep going, show, don't tell, show, don't tell. And, and it gets into readers' minds, and then you're reading a dramatized scene. That is vital. You need vivid dramatized scenes. Then there'll be some exposition that's summarized, and a lot of people go, oh, my God, why did they suddenly lose their ability to write? This, is, this isn't a scene. And so you can't possibly read Stapleton in that case, but you can't read Garcia Marquez. You can't read Hilary Mantel. It goes on and on and on. Can't, read, home, can't read Homer. T telling is very important. Telling and telling, it's beautiful. It's stand, prose poetry. Stand telling is showing. Yes, thank you. you. Well, you can't make a distinction because, after all, it's oh. writing. It's sentences on the page. So showing would actually be mime, right? It's like, movies. I'll show you. Like, <laughs> movies, movies, movies. Here's what I say to that particular phrase. <laughs> <laughs> that, that won't come over on the radio. <laughs> thank God. Uh, <laughs> So, I'm free to do some very transgressive My, my esteemed here. colleague, uh, Professor Robinson, uh, made, made a gesture with both hands, but only two fingers upraised. <laughs> uh, for, for those of you in podcast land who can't yeah. visualize Close what we're doing, that's, he's, telling not, he's telling, not showing. <laughs> is that, is, isn't that a false dichotomy to some extent? Isn't that what Very we're saying? So. I mean, yes. uh, I was, uh, Joe, your novel, My Real Children, has chunks of just told yes, I was, bits. I was just wondering whether to admit this, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, so thank you for outing me. My Real Children, my, my new book, uh, you've only got to tell me that I can't do something to make me think, well, how could I? My Real Children is entirely tell plus dialogue. There's mm -hmm. no show in the entire book. It is all tell plus dialogue. But now everybody knows this. They're not going to want to read it. So, um, <laughs> so I won't sell any copies. It, no, no, no. It's, 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 it's all dialogue with some telling stuff in it. No, it's, <laughs> people will read that. Yeah. Because it looks nobody, like a script. Nobody has noticed... Nobody, nobody said that this was a problem when they read the book. Pe people say, you know, your book made me cry. They didn't say it's all tell dialogue. Why isn't there any show? Mm. So, but I, no, I, I did that on purpose. I thought that would be an interesting mm -hmm. thing to do. Um, and that was part of what I wanted to do with that book. And I just totally did it because I am sick of people saying just, just what Stan just said. 
people saying show, don't tell, uh, as if exposition is a bad thing, as if you need to sort of dramatize absolutely everything all the time. But isn't the point, of, uh, one of the points it seemed to me you're making in that novel is that readers aren't obsessed with this at all. A well-told novel is going to, if it's, if it's violating all the MFA rules, is going to get past most readers anyway. Yeah, well, yes. t telling, telling is showing, basically. Uh, yeah. That's, yeah. That's what it is. You um, can talk about pace of narration in an interesting way. Summarization, you know, where you're compacting more uh, events into sh uh, a fewer words, and dramatization can be expanded out even to a slow motion. And those of you who saw my talk a couple of nights ago on Virginia Woolf and Olaf Stapleton, I just want to repeat this for the podcast that the, um, I rated it quantitatively as to how many minutes per page being described to see the differential. Mm -hmm. So um, the uh, Pincher Martin by uh, William Golding is 200 pages in which you find out at the end that the guy has drowned. So it's 200 pages to describe one minute. So it's about a third of a second per page. Whereas Star Maker, which we were talking about by Olaf Stapleton, tells the entire history of the universe. And um, just using the latest physicists' uh, guesses as to the age of the universe, you can say that in Star Maker, those 200 pages, it's 500 million years per page. Mm -hmm. And so I do, you do the math. Actually, my wife did the math. And the differential between the fastest and the slowest rates of narration is 47 trillion to one. <laughs> and that's one powerful art form that has a differential of 47 trillion to one. One, one of the absolute uh, moments of my early science fiction life was the, the Dover edition of Last and First Men and Star Maker together yeah, yeah. with those, cos those charts, those circular charts. Mm -hmm. And the first one, I, I finished Last and First Men and I thought, wow, this is seven billion years or something. And then you open Star Maker and the, <laughs> and the Last and First Men is this little tiny wedge <laughs> of, of this whole circle and you realize, oh, yeah. wow. But last and First Men is only two billion years only two billion. Only two I, billion. That's why I need calculators. Yeah. Well, Bob, it's, it's, it's there. It says two billion. Okay. To, that, to the eighteenth man. Two. Okay, the eighteenth man. That's two billion years. is a lot of time until you realize it's not. No. And that's one of the messages I've taken away from science fiction. It's one of the one of the things I I, I remember reading Permutation City, Greg Egan's Permutation City. Mm -hmm. Is, is you get to a point like you're two-thirds of the way through the book and you, you turn the page and it's 7,000 years later. <laughs> <laughs> While you're turning the page, you're like, nobody would do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a beautiful That's thing. That's so oh. cool. Yeah. And do you remember what Kipling said about the ways of telling tribal ways? Mm. Nine, there, nine there and 60 ways? Nine and 60 ways of telling tribal ways and every single one of them is right. Mm -hmm. uh, Pincher Martin... Uh, yes, it's a book of 200 pages, and the action which holds you is a gripping novel uh, is covering a few seconds, right. but you mm -hmm. don't know that. Right. Uh, Star Maker, which you ignorant bastards could not finish. <laughs> uh, but who's naming names? Is a stupendous cosmic revelation of things that you will never live to see, and in fact will never happen, but which you will never forget if you make the journey with Stapleton. And that's the use of science fiction that you, you opened with. Mm -hmm. It will put things into your mind that you can't see for yourself. Yeah. That's, good. that's a good phrase. And Stapleton did that better than anyone who has ever walked this planet. Uh, the audacity of, of Star Maker. Uh, a book which takes Last and First Men and puts it into half an inch. Mm -hmm. uh, unrivaled. They couldn't finish it. 
It's a, go ahead. Give, give them a break. Well, uh, yeah, it may, I think it's habits of reading and, and what, what you're used to. Uh, there is a kind of style sheet in modern science fiction that I call the Asimov style sheet, not from Isaac, but from the magazine, that uh, it says that there should be a certain number of adjectives per nouns. You can't go over or under. That says there should be a certain amount of dialogue per prose text. There's, they're hidden. They're not obtrusive. But if you chop out a paragraph from any 10 stories and, and mix and match and say, uh, who wrote what, you can't do it because the style sheet is omnipresent and everybody conforms to it. And this is the homogenization effect in modern yeah. science fiction. And everything is dramatization. Well, then when you get something truly odd, because Staple, uh, Stapleton and Starmaker is odd but so you know it's like William Blake's poetry it was just you have to get used to the the weird uh, genius mind that is telling you these stories mm -hmm. but once you get used to it and and they teach you their way of reading it then there's nothing like it and and uh, every paragraph of, of Stapleton star maker has been turned into an entire science fiction That's novel I was thinking to a trilogy yeah 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 it's they are dense with ideas it's as, a, a, as you paraphrase the Asimov style sheet you said there should be a, they, they say that there should be a certain number of adjectives per noun, et cetera, but you, you, you used the uh, euphemism a certain number rather than quoting the actual number. Let me tell you mm. what the actual number should, should be. What the certain number is, is the right number of adjectives per <laughs> noun. <laughs> ah, thank you, thank you. But uh, uh, think of uh, Aubrey, uh, Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Matron novels, one of the great uh, novels of the 20th century, these uh, mm. Patrick O'Brien things. Very often Patrick O'Brien will, um, in, a, in a certain mood, will put um, seven adjectives before a noun with no commas. Mm -hmm. And it's a habit of Matron, or, or maybe, uh, uh, no, it's a habit of Matron. So when O'Brien is writing from Matron's point of view, there'll be um, the bang, 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 bang noun. And it, there it is on the page, and it works like a charm. It, it may be a kind of a Regency thing that he's suggesting, but in any case, it works. But nobody else does mm -hmm. that anymore. In terms of the modern shift, we're talking, there's a lot to celebrate in modern science fiction, but we were talking about Stapleton. Is there any chance that those two Stapleton novels had they been written today, could get published? Yeah, by a small press. Mm -hmm. mm. right. you know, Subterranean Press, for example, or Tachyon, in twinkling of an eye, would publish them and yeah. would sell 4,000 copies or so and stir a hubbub yeah, for right. an hour or two. That's right. As it was, though, um, they were one of the first Penguin paperbacks, and the soldiers, the British soldiers in World War II, were going around with Last and First Man and Star Maker in their pocket yeah. in the war. And it was very, very widespread that they would mm -hmm. read this book and get a little cosmic perspective on the dispute that they were involved in and getting killed in. It gave a lot of comfort to a lot of people, because, they, and they wrote Stapleton to say so. They um, weren't actually penguins. It had a use. Stan, they weren't penguins. <coughs> they were pelicans. Oh, yeah, yeah. pelicans. Which yeah. was the non-fiction arm of penguin books. <laughs> <laughs> well, Virginia Woolf wrote a fan letter to him and said, you've, you've done something that I find uh, that I'm elated by, and I wish I could do that yeah. in my own fiction. And so she, didn't, <laughs> she too thought of him as doing something like a, I think maybe a prose poem or a philosophical uh, meditation. I mean, it doesn't read like most novels, but I will claim it for the novel because I think the novel can do anything. Yeah. Orlando, her science fiction novel, mm -hmm. uh, also breaks all the rules. Right. Yeah, she tried. Jonathan? Oh, Joe. I, I don't think it's so much the uh, rules of how many adjectives you're allowed to have and that kind of thing that is the problem. It's, it's the pacing. It's people have a certain expectation of the shape of story and the pacing that you're going to get in, 
in a science fiction novel or in, in a fantasy, and the genre almost is pacing. And when you get something that's got a completely skewed pace, like, like Stapleton, where it's not a modern book, it's not written in... It's not an adventure, it's not got characters in the same kind mm -hmm. of way that people expect. The beats don't fall in the accustomed places. It's like when you listen to Chinese music for the first time, and it's not Bach, and you can't quite mm -hmm. pass it as music. You've got to be educated to it. Mm -hmm. And for a modern reader, it's, it's difficult to attune your ear to... Uh, to, to, to Stapledon, because not, not I think because of the, the adjectives or the, the way that it's written so much as the, the way the story is, the, the, the story shape. Yeah, I think that's right, but I think the modern reader, the contemporary reader, us, should always be reading back in the canon. It really right. should be reading Maul Flanders by Defoe, one of the great novels, should be plucking through the years and trying out older writers and older styles and finding the ones that are congenial and the ones that are not. Maybe you'll never warm to D.H. Lawrence, but maybe you'll love Joseph Conrad. I mean, the testing, the, the exploration of the, of the tradition of the novel and of short stories is, is part of the fun. Go to used book, go to libraries used book sales, go to the literature or classics table and look around and say, well, I'll just try this and that. You only are paying a dollar or 50 cents and try it. And suddenly literature gains historical depth and read Virginia Wilson, the common reader, because everybody that she writes about, she gives you this fire inside. Oh my God, I've got to read that. That must be the best thing in the world. Uh, uh, she has that ability as a critic to encourage you, to inspire you to try things because she makes them sound so good. And there's a million older things for free on Project Gutenberg if you've got an e-book. Mm -hmm. um, mm. You know, sort of if, if you want to read 18th and 19th and very early 20th century fiction, there's a ton of stuff that's published before 1922 that is just sitting there and you can read it for, for nothing without even having to pay the 50 cents. Uh, which is just so great. Oh, which it, is great. That, it takes away the treasure hunt, the scavenger hunt. I do love going to the libraries. Now that used bookstores are gone from this world, I love going to an unsorted table of used novels and just looking at them and doing a scavenger hunt. And, you know, online when it's just lists of titles, I just, I don't get the same thrill out of that. That but, might be age-related, age but I uh, like physical objects. I like treasure hunt, too. But you, you, you start looking for, for an author and you find one of their books like this and then you want to read their other 18 books. Yeah. And there they are online and you can read them all today rather than spending the next 20 years looking for their 18 books and being two that you can never ever find. So, you know, yeah. I, th no, I think there's good. a big plus to that. I think one of the things that, we're, uh, that this implies to me is um, that the dialogue, uh, the conversation that Joe uh, referred to, is broadened to include a lot of non-science fiction. It seems to me that in the 40s and 50s, a lot of science fiction writers were talking to each other. Uh, and that began to change uh, in the 70s when the whole of literature became game for the conversation. And, and, and Bob, you've written stories in direct conversation with Joseph Conrad, for example. Uh, and that stri strikes me as being a healthy sort of, sort of expansion of the field. We've, we've complained many times on this podcast uh, about the gateway that keeps science fiction from entering the mainstream or getting on the booker list or gaining respectability. There's another gateway that some science fiction readers set up against any kind of mainstream literature. I cannot read, somebody will tell me, Dostoevsky because there aren't any robots in it. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's, 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 as, that's as narrow-minded as, as these. That, that's their loss. Yeah. Uh, just as when you all held up your non-hands over... Uh, just let it go. Star, <laughs> star maker. <laughs> Well, no, I, uh, 
<laughs> Line up in the middle here. And <laughs> great, audi great audiences produce great books. If you're a lousy audience, then eventually only lousy books will be published. And this can generate a certain amount of anger in writers who are trying to... Like who? <laughs> uh, so sometimes one gets angry with the audience. Uh, Coriolanus, when they banished him from Rome, mm -hmm. turned around and said to the Romans, I banish you. Well, it's a similar thing. Uh, if, if the audience says, I can't get all the way to the end of Star Maker, not only is it their loss, it's our loss. But Bob, when Coriolanus is your role model for, I mean, you're in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, he ends, he ends badly, but, but he's got some good ideas. <laughs> um, as for this, this business of, of how to write and how many adjectives and all of that, there is something about writing which every successful writer knows, which is how to tell a story. There are three such writers sitting up here in front of you, and we don't write anything like each other, but yet we, we get all of our work published somehow. Uh, Star Maker, The Martian Chronicles, and the novels making up a Game of Thrones mm -hmm. could not be more different from one another. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, I understand Mr. Martin does a lot of telling along with his showing, and people buy his books, mm -hmm. I hear. <laughs> uh, the criterion is not the ratio of adjectives to nouns, but does it work? Does it move readers? Does it move some readers? Does it move enough readers, and coming back to the megalopolis that science fiction has become, it's very hard now for discerning readers to pick out from the multitude of books the ones that will change their minds the way novels X, Y, and Z changed my mind in the 1950s, or Stan's in the 1960s, or Joe's in the 1970s. There's too much being published. Uh, this is a problem for which I have no solution, <laughs> and I'm not required to provide solutions any more than the finder of a counterfeit bill is uh, in, in, in required to replace it himself. But it is a problem, I think. The, world, the science fiction world is, is inflated to the point where it's become chaotic. I, I'm sure there's wonderful work being done within it. Mm -hmm. I can't find it, or I don't. I can't immediately find it the way I did when I was younger. You, you can't immediately find it be, by reading everything and remembering the good bits, like when you were younger. Mm -hmm. But you can't but read you everything. Can't, no, you can't read everything. But you can find it by listening to recommendations and listening to where the buzz is and what, what people are, are, are talking about. Mm -hmm. and, and I find things that yeah. way. And, and I think that for today's young people coming along, there are things that are just as exciting to them and that are gateway drugs for them in the way that they were for us. I'm going to embarrass somebody who's in this audience who I was talking to mm -hmm. yesterday uh, who, who was saying that she was the age where she read Harry Potter and it made her love reading. And that before that, she just read because she was obliged to read for school. And she read mm -hmm. Harry Potter and Harry Potter opened the door and suddenly she adored reading and she loved reading. 
And uh, she came into fandom through reading Among Others, and Among Others mentions conventions, so she went to a local convention, and now she's here. There, there, are, there are five people at this con, I'm really proud of them. <laughs> there are five people at this con from three different countries who are here because they're at Among Others and have told me so. I think this is so great. But, but in preparation for this con, she went to the local library and uh, read everything they had in the local library that was by authors who were going to be here. And that's so exactly what I would have done when I was 15, you know? Mm -hmm. It's so precisely what I would have done that it is, it is just awesome. And, and this, is, this is yesterday. There are people who are still just like, like we were when we were that age and coming along and, and coming into, into fandom and into, into reading in that way. And, and, and it is, it's, it's torch passing. There are, are new young editors and new young writers. There's a lot going on and you can find it. And even if you don't find absolutely everything the minute it's written, you'll, you'll find it sooner or later. And I, I think it's a very, very exciting time to be a writer. And a new writer like that might very well never go back and right. read Heinlein or Clark or Asimov or Bradbury, uh, but they'll have their own canon. They have, they have their own way in. Right. Well, that's perfectly reasonable. After all, for the, the writers of the Gernsback era in the 1920s, mm -hmm. Heinlein, Bradbury, and Asimov, and Clark were not part of the canon. No. Uh, right. <laughs> thing, things change with time. When I look around at the conversation online, what I really notice is there seems to be a desperate hunger for intelligent and adventurous, not adventure fiction, but adventurous science fiction. And when I look at the way certain key novels have been received over the past few years, and I'm thinking particularly of a book like The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi and Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice this year. What, there, there is an enormous response to these books when they, when they appear to come along. But they don't come along often, and maybe they never did apart from that, that, that fateful year in the 1950s. But I'm curious whether the panel thinks science fiction right now is continuing to be adventurous enough in trying to put these kind of books out there or whether, because of the sheer volume of material published, they're largely hidden from view. I think they're out there and just hidden from view because there's so many more. But if you listen to, if you read your friends, if you listen to the, um, the if you read Gary's column in Locus and just pay attention, look around, the, the number of British writers alone whose name begins with MC, that could fuel you for the rest of time. I mean, it's an amazing crowd. Macaulay, McLeod. McLeod, um, McDonald, yeah. my lord. Um, How has Paul McCauley never been on the Hugo ballot for a novel? Well, I, who knows about these things? Let's not worry about the Hugo yeah. Award or any awards. The, the thing is, there's more good novels to read than there is time to read them, in, mm -hmm. unless you are a very, very devoted reader and fast reader. But if you're, if you're an ordinary person and you're finishing a book a, a week or or so, uh, uh, which is, I guess I'm calling myself an ordinary person. Nevertheless, you, you, there's more good books to read than there is time to read them, especially if you're going back in the canon and back-checking things you never checked out. And, and the new stuff is phenomenally good. I, I just read Ian MacDonald's uh, Dervish House, which uh, made a huge splash a couple of years ago. Well, what a fine novel that was. And, uh, and well, but, I learned a lot, too. And but so, did MacDonald make a huge splash with it? He's a brilliant writer. And uh, I've read things of his that left me staggered, even yeah. recently. Yeah. But where are his Hugos? 
Where are his best sellers? Well, no. Do people he, gather around him at the convention and demand his autograph? Um, yeah, some. I, I, the thing is that everybody has to look to the markers of success that they get and then decide that those are the best markers of success. Can I? You know, this is the way that you manage to cobble together a positive uh, view of your own career. So some people will sell a whole lot of books, and then in their community, they won't be read or reviewed very much. They won't get reviewed in the general public. But they're selling so many books, they say, why do I care? I've got readers. And readers really are the ultimate gold standard. Then other people will say, well, I don't have very many readers, but I won this award, that award, the other award. The Dervish House won two awards. Which, and, um, which awards? Good question. I, I, saw the, I saw it on the blur. <laughs> it won, the, it won um, the People clock. can tell me who know, but it, it won some, some awards. But and you said a huge yeah. splash, and I'm trying to find out what in your mind constitutes was, a splash. Well, um, it, uh, maybe it was a littler okay. splash, it like Icarus in the Bruegel. Um, <laughs> it's going to be remembered. It's part of McDonald's work, and McDonald, over the course of his career, has definitely carved a spot. McDonald's okay, Joe, is a Joe, Joe has yeah, specific splash into it. I don't yeah. think it's what a book wins. I think it's what it's nominated for that counts, particularly with the yeah, Hugos. Huh. Dervish House was nominated for a Hugo. It lost to Connie Willis. That's no disgrace. No. Uh, River of Gods was, was nominated for a Hugo. I think... I think MacDonald is a writer that people like. I think he is a writer that people mob and want his autograph and are excited by. Yeah. He's won BSFA awards. He's won Clark awards yeah. uh, with, within the UK. He's won the, the John W. Campbell Totally Bizarre Award for Science Fiction Novel that isn't science fiction several oh, yeah. times. <laughs> um, I, I, that award is so weird. Uh, but I think Dervish House won that. Um, I think River of Gods, one or other of them won it. I, I don't mm. remember which. Um, and he, he is someone that people are excited by. When he's got a new novel out, people are excited. People mm -hmm. are talking about it. Well, I hope it, so. It, he's an exciting writer. I, I was just questioning whether anybody else had noticed how good he is. Sure, sure. No, I think so. Yeah. I, I, I certainly yeah. have. Yeah. But, but if... I, I wrote a series for Tor.com uh, called Revisiting the Hugos, which I'm making into a book which is probably going to be called An Informal History of the Hugos. Um, and looking at all five books that are nominated every year from uh, 1953 to 2000. And not looking at whether the best book won, but looking at whether those five books are the best five books of that year, which means looking at everything that's published that year mm -hmm. and those five books within that context. Uh, and whether they were the best five, whether they're representative of where the genre was. And by and large, the answer is yes. yes. Um, and, um, and I think that's much more valuable than whether a specific book won. So I would say that in, in getting the Hugo nomination recognition, uh, MacDonald is, is just there. And that's all, I think his last three adult books have all been Hugo nominees. So, Brazil. you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's a writer who's, who's made it. And I particularly remember in Reno, when Dervish House was nominated, he told me he was going to wear a kilt to the uh, Hugos because he was the only man mm. on the ballot. And that way, whoever won, they'd be wearing a skirt. <laughs> <laughs> he's a great guy. Very funny. Great I, writer. I, Read him if you haven't. I do have to say I, I appreciate when you talked about more or less, the Hugo nominations are a guide to good fiction. That more or less is not every year, perhaps. Right, not every year. <laughs> no, not 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 every year. <laughs> but but we can go back to this point that really it's a. There are an awful lot of really fine science fiction novels being read. They're hard to locate, and yet they're not impossible to locate. In the flood, you just keep an eye peeled and and you know listen to 
uh, your own native guide. I think this was what happens in the general culture. They'll have uh, people in the general culture that don't read a whole lot of science fiction. When they get interested in reading science fiction, they'll go to the friend that they know as a science fiction fan, say, what should I read? And so they've got a native guide and that says, well, try this, try this, try this. And off they go. So um, word of uh, mouth and the cascade theory that uh, if one person tells five people to read it and then those five people tell five people to read it and, um, you know, word of mouth is, is, uh, is famous for being the one thing that can really um, and make I, a difference. And I tend to think word of mouth works better in science fiction and fantasy than it does in the mainstream. Uh, basically, in the mainstream, you are given highly promoted novels and you, everybody knows about Donna Tartt, for example. Um, but if somebody discovers a small press book, uh, even if it's a reviewer for the New York Times, they probably won't be able to get much buzz on that. In our field, if somebody discovers a novel, which I happened to read without knowing what it was a couple of years ago, it's not science fiction, it's fantasy, but it was Sophia Samatar's A Stranger in Alondria, which mm -hmm. I thought was brilliant. Great and it existed because of buzz. It got some good reviews, but it had no promotional budget to speak of. Uh, it just had people talking. And since in this field we do tend to talk to each other more than the general reading public does, I think what Stan is saying is absolutely correct. Buzz can be created by us. Yeah. And it, it, and it was Nebula nominated this year, Stranger in a mm -hmm. Yes. And it's a great, uh, great book. I'm, I'm struggling to hear the name of this book, which is coming through to me as A Stranger in the Laundry. <laughs> That's pretty close, actually. Yeah, what is it? Olandria, O-L-O-N-D-R-I-A. Oh, it's a by, place. By yes. Yeah. Well, Australia actually, the laundry is a place, The laundry too. is a place, too. <laughs> <laughs> by, by Sophia Samatar, mm -hmm. um, published by Small Beer Press, Nebula-nominated, absolutely terrific, beautiful book. And Sophia's not here, but I, I'm going to tell her that she should do a Gene Wolfe, and she should write a novel the called Stranger The Stranger in the Laundry, in the laundry <laughs> just like Gene wrote The Castle of the Otter. Work yes. for Gene. <laughs> well, not only that, when he, he lost... The Nebula for uh, the death of the, the Doctor of Death Island. Mm -hmm. He wrote the death of Doctor <laughs> Island. and won a Nebula for that. <laughs> yeah. Jonathan. Moment of silence. That's very bad in, in this art form, isn't it? Dead dead microphone. We'll edit it out later. Well, it actually suggests that this oh, is this an is art form. This mm. is going to be edited. <laughs> um, it's radio. Oh, it's radio. I think everybody yeah. out, else out there knows the answer to that question. Uh, the, the edited? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no, I think the question we need to decide is when we want to start talking to people from the audience or yeah, having them talking to us. I've got one last question. So uh -huh. based on all this, are we content with the state of science fiction in 2014? I'm, I, I'm, I'm excited by it. But maybe that's just me. I've always been excited by it, though. I can't, I can't think of a year when I haven't been excited by the state of science fiction, except for when cyberpunk was sort of like everywhere and, and I got a little depressed, briefly. I, my, my response is what we've said before. I mean, I've been writing a monthly review column for 21 years now or something like that, and... Every month, I think I'm not going to I'm not going to make it through this. I just want to read Hemingway for about five years, and and then something will come along. Every year, there are one or two novels or story collections or novellas or authors that I didn't know about um, a few years ago. I didn't know who K.J. Parker was. Now I'm very excited about this writer. Uh, so that always happens. There's always something really exciting that appears. My discontent 
with current science fiction is um, a kind of a practical problem as a writer. I think that the world has become a science fiction novel that we all co-write together. And then when you're saying, okay, now I'm going to write science fiction, and you within it, uh, that reality itself is science fiction, do, are you doing realism? And how do you figure out how to do something that hasn't been uh, already done in, almost in the real world, not to mention being predicted? And uh, it, I, I find a, a certain sense of um, a brain freeze as I contemplate the current scene. It's neat that the world has become a science fiction novel because it says that we were right to be interested in it all along. When it, uh, I mean, it's been true all of everybody's lives, even Bob's, but it becomes more and more evident um, that it's been a science fiction novel these last 50, 60, 80, 100 years. But now that it's become more evident, then we just look uh, kind of um, retroactively justified in choosing this as our favorite genre. But what do we do now? In other words, like, what do I write next? And, and then I begin to have uh, feelings of, oh my God, I, I just can't understand anything anymore. So, um, so that's my discontent, but it's rather personal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, think, I think I've always actually had that problem as well, because I find science fiction incredibly hard to write. That's why I write fantasy, because fantasy is deeply rooted in history, and history's right there, and you can go research it, and the future isn't, and you've got to work it all out. You have to make it up. You have to make yeah. it up and work yeah. it all out, and that's very hard. Well, there are people who say, science fiction writers, who say that writing fantasy is playing tennis without a net. Mm -hmm. And that yes, but the science fiction writers are playing tennis with the net up, but they've got this magical thing that whenever the ball goes at the net, the net opens up and yep. lets the ball right through. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not the toughest game around. <laughs> Wormholes in the net. Yeah, well, let's, let's just flog this metaphor to death, why don't we? <laughs> it's a heroic simile, goddammit. Postmodernism is playing tennis without the ball. Well, <laughs> well the, the truth is that fantasy and science fiction are both parts of the same form, uh, non-realistic fiction, and they're both played without a net because we just make it up. We make up both of them. As for uh, the state of science fiction today, I have to be, be neutral on that. I'm no longer an active writer, no longer an active reader. I would hold out for 1953 as, as the summit of the art. <laughs> Or maybe 1969, or whatever. I don't care. I hope you read the stuff. I hope that whatever you do read lights up your synapses and makes your ears tingle and does for you what science fiction did for me in, in 1950, for Stan in 1960, for Joe in 1970, for Gary in 1492. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope some of you will give Star Maker another try. <laughs> Jonathan, you have to answer the question you asked yourself. Oh, what do I think about this? The, 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 am I content with the state of science fiction? Yeah. Never. Never, <laughs> never, never, never. Why would I want to be content with it? You know, I've been reading it actively since I was seven years old. Uh, I was thrilled with it when I was 13. I was <coughs> thrilled with it again in the 1980s. It I was less thrilled with it for a period of time. I, I, I will be thrilled with it again. You know, the, the next great book that I've never seen is just around the corner. Mm -hmm. And I, I honestly believe that there is another great science fiction novel coming out sometime soon, and a great short story is going to show up in my mailbox or on a website or, you know, somewhere. I'm going to read your next book, or I'm going to read what comes after 2312, or whatever it might be, 
and I still have room to be surprised by the stuff that I missed from the 1960s because I didn't read it all. And maybe I'll go and give you know, Last and First Men another go, uh, and then we'll all be happy. Star makers, <laughs> Jonathan, star, ma star maker. But not maybe Star Man Jones. <laughs> no. Well, this uh, might be a reasonable time then, Gary, since mm -hmm. we have a short amount of time left, if there is any interest to, uh, to throw the uh, microphone open for questions. But we'll do it a little bit differently, so I better come down with a microphone. This, this is not going to end well. So, so, well, just so we can actually get this on the podcast. Otherwise, oh, I understand. So we can it's not going to work. Yeah. So, they'll who have to has come to questions? you. Yeah. I saw your question first. Oh my first. God. So, what's your question? Yeah, it's about the buzz. I mean, actually, the buzz. Oh, you need to get closer. Yeah, step it's up about up. the buzz. Um, the buzz is us. I mean, I'd yeah. like to go around the whole room and say, what book have you told someone at work or your kids who aren't reading? Hey, read this. Give a 14-year-old Charlie Stross's books. Ruin him. Mm -hmm. But surely each and every one of the panel, apart from people telling us to reread any <laughs> books again, could tell us, hey, you should be reading this now. Mm -hmm. Sophie actually had a comment, didn't you? Was that Sophie a has a question. This is, this is a family thing. There's was no nepotism involved. Was, Come here. No, that was... Uh, what, what's your question? Um, I was actually wondering if um, Joe thinks that um, what she said earlier, um, she mentioned something about um, fantasy being dedicated mostly to the past and what things have happened in the past, and f um, science fiction being dedicated mostly to things that happen in the future. Um, I was wondering if that's what you think. Yeah, that, that, that's, what, that's certainly what I said. Mm -hmm. um, that the fantasy is drawing on history and I can do that because history is right there and I can fix it and break it and do different things with it. Mm -hmm. Whereas researching the future is a lot more challenging. Um, if I'm writing fantasy and it's set in a secondary fantasy world or if it's set in a contemporary world and I want a character to send a message to another character, I know how that works, okay? I know how the Romans sent messages. I know how they sent messages in the Middle Ages. I know how they sent messages. I know when the postage stamp was invented and how you got letters franked before that. I even understand sort of how people text each other. Good with email. Um, whereas in 100 years... In 200 years, how are people going to send messages? If I want a character to send a message, it's going to be something unimaginable that I am going to have to imagine myself and make up and then integrate with everything else in the story. And it's a phenomenal amount of work when you've got to do that for absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. And some people just say, oh, just hand wave. Oh, don't change it very much. Oh, it won't have changed very much. And it's changed so much in my adult lifetime that it's impossible to believe that it won't change and that it, and it's not just messages that's for every single thing and the way that i world build i find science fiction very difficult to do for that reason to to build a future and, and i love it i love science fiction so much and i love it when other people do that and i read their their built futures when when i read ice henge as an as as example from the, the panel, you, you look at that book and look at the, the depth of, of all of that in that, and I, I just adore that. But doing it, I find really hard. I've done it in short work, but, but uh, I've never really made it work in a novel, but I'm trying again. Do you, do you think that acquiring the knowledge that Sir Roland Hill invented the penny postage stamp in 1840 is less difficult 
than making up a substitute for postage in 2040 or yeah, 2440? because I, I knew it already. But how did you know it? You weren't born with it. You had to go no. and look it up. You, yeah. It was effort. But, but I looked it up, and I can't go and look it up. There's no way to look it up. I no, no, the you, 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 look, you look it up between the ears. But uh, in one case, <laughs> you're slogging along doing research, which mm -hmm. requires uh, digging. Yeah. In the other case, you're inventing. They're both part of the creative process in a way, but one of them you do without rising from your seat. The other requires digging through Google or libraries. I think I'm not very good at making things up. Oh, that's the real Okay, issue. that's um, it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, no, I think that, actually, that actually genuinely is, is the issue. Uh, I think there are, there are people who are good at making things up. And, and integrating them. And I'm quite good at integrating them, and I can, I can make some things up, but some things that when I'm running, I just know. Hmm. But the bit where you actually have to make it up and make it work, it, it feels like a lot of work, and it slows me the heck down. And it, it short-circuits my process, because I, I write quite fast. And if I've got to keep stopping and thinking and figuring it out, oh, we have it a time. really slows yeah. me down. Can you read that? Um, and... and what always has happened when I've tried to write a science fiction novel is that it's slowed okay. me down, it's ground me down so slow that I've ended up grinding to a halt and okay. writing fantasy instead we've been, of We've been given a five-minute sign, sorry, sorry, sorry. and we need to <laughs> have one, one more. question. So, um, I just wanted to point out that even though you had been reading everything, you had actually been reading everything that was written and published in English. And... Um, missing out on some other science fiction mm -hmm. that was written around the world and the buzz that we have today would have meant that you wouldn't have had to wait um, nine years to read Solaris in English, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On the other hand, we could argue that the buzz is what made us aware of Murakami getting, who eventually won a World Fantasy Award. Uh, there is some buzz. There should be more. You're right. Do we have time for one more? One more? Probably the most expensive books I've ever bought were, among others, by Joe Walton and the Encyclopedia of John Clutey. Not because of the cost themselves, but the following cost, because I had to, books, to buy book after book after book after book after book. <laughs> so what I want from you, or what I, was a desire of mine, Bob Silverberg is perfectly right. The field has become virtually impenetrable. But if you recommend books, if you write books about books, because you are the experts and not the academics, it would be a tremendous help to keep in dialogue with the authors and with new authors as well. Thank you very much. Hmm. We are going to have to wrap up now. Okay, we might, we yes, we might end, end, end with that. And thank you for the comment, Mark. Uh, this has been the 200th episode of the Coot Street Podcast, We'd where apparently adult subjects have been under discussion. <laughs> we have a few thank yous to make before we go. We'd like to thank... The wonderful people at... Stan did something that's not going to show up on the podcast. Yeah, I was, oh, was going to say that must have been just it. Yeah. Just, just so but was know. it adult? <laughs> don't, don't tell me. We're, we're, we're finally coming down to the basic level of all the other 200 episodes. Audio that's great. Right. Yes. We'd like to thank the people at LunCon who have provided the space for the podcast today and the technical support, the technical team over in the corner who have recorded it for us. We would like to thank our very, very special guests, our friends Joe Walton. The great Robert Silverberg. And Kim Stanley Robinson for joining us. All the fingers this time. And along with Gary K. Wolf, I would like to thank you all for joining us on what has been the 200th episode of the Coot Street Podcast. Wow.
job, guys. That was fun. That was fun.